On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk. I was about to say that there's pretty much uniformity across the front pages, but actually there is one newspaper front page this morning which isn't about ongoing affairs in Montrose. So let's actually start with that. Uh, McGrath and Donoghue set to woo voters with a five billion budget package. That's the front page of the Business Post, which tells us that the government is set to unleash a tax and spending package worth more than €5 billion in a bid to woo back angry voters in key elections next year. Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue are are readying a plan to increase core spending by more than €4 billion next year and to cut taxes by over €1 billion uh, as the government seeks to win voter support ahead of the local and European elections next June and a possible general election maybe as early as next autumn. All of this apparently due to be signed off on uh, in the summer economic statement which is intended to be delivered on Tuesday. However, further down the article we do learn the tensions between the coalition uh, have resurfaced over the scale of the tax and spending cuts that will be allowed in the budget. This is the first time in 12 years that Fine Gael have not held the finance brief at the beginning of a budget cycle and disagreements between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael over the scale of the tax package are understood to be a sticking point. Fine Gael is pu- uh, pushing for a significant tax package in excess of €1 billion euro, but the details of what tax measures the money will be spent on obviously won't be announced until uh, the budget. Uh, but there appeared to be some disagreement within government this weekend over whether the summer economic statement would in fact be ready for sign-off on Tuesday, which reveals an ongoing standoff over uh, the final package. That's the business post. I will warn you from here on in, as regards the front pages, it is pretty much all RTE. Uh, the Sunday Independent tells us that the government is to invoke special powers to appoint an outside auditor to review RTE's finances. In an unprecedented move that underscores the scale of the crisis at the National Broadcaster, Media Minister Catherine Martin will use her discretion under the Broadcasting Act to appoint an outside person to examine the books of other records uh, and other records of accounts at RTE. Uh, the move, which is expected to be signed off by Cabinet this coming Tuesday, is the clearest indication yet that the government is not satisfied uh, that RTE has been fully transparent uh, about its finances. Uh, this comes hand in hand uh, with an opinion poll commissioned by Southern Independent, uh, carried out by Ireland Thinks, which also shows that uh, over half the public don't believe Ryan Tuberty should ever be allowed back on RTE. More than half of people trust the station less than they did before and nearly one third do not now intend to pay their TV licence. On the idea of appointing an outside person to go in and inspect the books at RTE, I want to just play you a quick little bit of audio. Leo Varadkar was asked specifically about the prospect of doing this um, in a doorstep with journalists on Friday morning on his way into the European Council meeting at Brussels. And I thought at the time he sounded a little reticent at the idea. Here's what he said. The plan that government agreed on Tuesday was that we would appoint uh, an outside person, a person who's an expert in corporate governance, uh, to do review of the governance and culture of RTE. So that's definitely what we're going to do. Um, we haven't decided exactly which legal mechanism will be used. So there is an option under the Act for the Minister to appoint um, a, a designated person. Uh, and um, at least earlier in the week, it wasn't planned to do that. But uh, I think the Minister, say the Minister is still reserving her judgment on that and uh, it remains an option. But the important thing uh, really is less the mechanism that we use. It's more the fact that it's done. So that's Leo Varadkar, who at the time seemed pretty unsure about the idea of appointing an outside person by government to go in and examine the accounts of RTE. And I was actually talking to one cabinet minister this morning who suggested this was news to a lot of members of cabinet, that they hadn't actually reached any accord on whether to do that. Then the same cabinet minister saw the front page of the Sunday Times and said, you know what, actually, I think we're justified in sending somebody in. Because the Sunday Times tells us this morning 
that RTE knew that it had published false salary figures for Ryan Tuberty more than three years ago, but failed to correct the public record, which helped to conceal the existence of secret payments to its top presenter, the Sunday Times can reveal. Executives at the state broadcaster knew that Tuberty had been paid €120,000 more than his publicly stated salary between 2017 and 19. The payments were discussed during contact renegotiations between reps for the public broadcaster and Tuberty's agents in February 2020. Deloitte RTE's auditor were also made aware of the issue at the time. RTE had repeatedly claimed that €345,000 in overpayments to Tuberty were identified only after the routine audit of the broadcaster's accounts in March. Now, this is obviously quite significant to the effect that it massively undermines the account given uh, by RTE up till now, including at Oireachtas Committees. Uh, investigations by this newspaper have now also uncovered further irregularities between Tuberty and the National Broadcaster. On one occasion, Tuberty requested that RTE Commercial provide a chauffeur to drive Neve Tyndall, the managing director of his talent agency NK Management, to and from a function to promote the carmaker Renault, the sponsor of The Late Late Show. The bill for the chauffeur was paid for from the same barter account that was used to funnel €150,000 in secret payments to Tuberty last year. Tuberty and Tyndall did not respond to questions by the Sunday Times yesterday. Now, this disclosure, the paper says, raises serious questions about what Tuberty understood to be the function of RTE's commercial department, given that expenses put through the barter account are effectively paid for by the public. Uh, It's not clear if the cost of the chauffeur, €874, was included in the overall price tag incurred by the broadcaster to cover the Renault events hosted by Tuberty. That overall price tag, €47,477. I will just remark, um, by the by, that I find it somewhat ironic that the car maker organising the event would not be in a position to provide transport themselves, uh, Ren requested. Uh, Finally for now, uh, and this again is also on the RTE front, but this is quite significant as well, uh, from the Mail on Sunday, which tells us that the coalition is going to split RTE in half. Uh, says the headline, the government will split RTE's public service and commercial functions in the biggest shake-up in its history, ministers have told the Irish Mail on Sunday. Cabinet sources said that in addition to appearing before the PAC, Ryan Tuberty must pay back all the secret payments in question. Uh, The piece goes on to say that although official inquiries are yet to commence into the scandal engulfing RTE, the government believes it can execute measures which would previously have been regarded as politically unpalatable. Cabinet sources familiar with the discussions said those would include splitting RTE's public service and commercial functions into two different entities, uh, selling off 2FM and potentially ending the licence for the second terrestrial TV station Network 2, uh, the wholesale reconstitution of RTE's management structure, which would begin with resignations from the executive board, um, all staff salaries and presenters' pay to be set below the level of assistant secretaries within the civil service. That would mean the highest ranking pay would be €176,000. Uh, a redundancy scheme which would focus on higher paid employees, which could feature as many as 400 layoffs, and the rapid introduction of new proposals to replace the existing licence fee. Uh, so fair to say on that front then, there's an awful lot of RTE stuff uh, to get through. Uh, we'll be talking in a few minutes to David Davenpower, former political correspondent um, at RTE, to get his take on everything that's going on right now. But we are joined in the studio, first of all, uh, by Rachel Lavin, data journalist with the Sunday Times, ordinarily based in London, but home for a couple of weeks. And Rachel, delighted to have you here. And also by Peter Leonard, barrister and presenter of the Fifth Court podcast, uh, available anywhere you get your online uh, audio online. Uh, thank you both for coming in. Um, in truth, and I, I say this often, but I genuinely mean it this week, I don't know where to start. So, Peter, um, have at it. Uh, dive in. Where do you want to go well, first? Well, I don't know where to start either. There is just so much coverage. And, you know, is there anything new under the sun? Well, actually, there is a little bit in, in the papers. And in fairness to the Sundays, they have to come up with new stuff. And I think they have in relation to that. You read out that story then for, from the front page of the Sunday Times, that this knowledge went back over three years. Mm. And also the information about the, the chauffeur-driven car 
Um, looking at it overall, I thought today was slightly a better day from Ryan Tuberty's point of view. Now, I know there's a poll from the Sunday Independent which says that 47% of people say he shouldn't be allowed back on air. I wonder about that sort of comment, but that's, I suppose that's what the poll says. But crucially, I thought only 7% of people pointed the finger at him for what had gone wrong. This is what, what I, I think everything has shifted at the moment to RTE corporate as opposed to the, the deal itself that mm. was done in relation to Ryan Tuberty. Uh, I thought that was quite striking because when I read that headline figure, I sort of wondered how you could reconcile the two because if 47% of people don't think Ryan Tuberty should ever be back on RTE, I wonder how they'd square that with only 7% of people believing that Tuberty himself is largely personally to blame. So the Ireland Thinks poll uh, that you mentioned um, asked people who they thought were mostly to blame for this whole secret payment scandal. Um, 73% of people believed the station management as a whole. Uh, 13% of people singled out D Forbes, sorry, 12% singled out D Forbes specifically as hearing most of the blame. 7% Tuberty himself and 4% his agent. So if clearly the vast majority of people think that actually this is a collective failure of RTE management, yes. you'd wonder then how most of those people would also think that Ryan Tuberty should never work again. Well, I mean, the, the machinations of opinion polls always kind of boggle the mind, Gavin. Um, so there is an inconsistency there, I think. I think. I mean, I think people just when they hear kind of Tuberty, they think, oh, but that's, that's the end. You know, he can't come back. But, you know, let everybody settle down and see what the story is. And if he takes a little bit of time out, I'm sure there is life for him. I mean, it's, it, it would be very harsh uh, if his broadcasting career was over. And with that, can I just make reference to a very interesting article, quite a strong opinion piece, I think, from Breda Power in the Sunday Times. Mm. And she talks about, um, she, she's quite critical of the media for the way they have treated Ryan Tuberty. Now, I know Ryan Tuberty has a lot of questions to answer, and I'm not trying mm. to do a soft sell on him, but I thought this was a very interesting comment. She said, the sheer velocity of his descent must feel almost like a shock bereavement. And yet the lack of compassion in his treatment by the media colleagues this past week has been shameful. He should, of course, have insisted that the true figure for his earnings be published. But does that failing mean he should never, as the Irish Times columnist Fintan O'Toole thundered last week, work as a broadcaster again? So just I, I, that's what I was saying. It's a better morning for him. There's been a bit yeah. of a turn in terms of the attitude. And I think the focus has shifted onto RTE management and how they go about their business. Mm. I think the, the the PAC during the week and the media uh, committee that, that had held hearings with various different members of RTE management, I think that has moved the story on. Mm. And I think that's the primary focus of today in the Sunday papers. Um, I'll tell you what, if you are a listener who thinks that Ryan Tuberty does not largely carry the can, but do, do also still think that he should never be back on RTE at the very least, uh, do let me know. 87 because if you explain how you believe both can be the case. I'd be certainly fascinated to hear your logic on that. Uh, Rachel Lavin, good morning to you. Again, open question. There is just so much in the papers. What jumped out at you from the quite extensive coverage of all of this today? Yeah, well, on the back of what Peter said, I think the question of Tuberty and his culpability came to the fore on the front page of the Sunday Times mm. um, piece. Uh, basically said that he had, you know, asked for a chauffeur himself. Um, and this was a question of his culpability. There was an interesting detail in the John Mooney and Bo Donnelly piece in the Sunday Times where they said that this was known about, uh, was it three years ago? Mm. Um, and in negotiations between Tuberty, his agent, and RTE. And it came out that there was 120k of top of payments. Now, forgive my ignorance, I didn't know this. 120k of top of payments from 27 to 2019 that yeah. still haven't really been explained. Yes, yeah, so RTE are still in the process themselves, they say, of trying to offer an explanation for that. <laughs> so Grant Thornton are doing a second report, which refers to those three years, <sighs> separate to the report that they've already done, which covered the later three years. It so is, he received 20,000 
previously undisclosed for the year 2017 and then 50,000 for each of 2018 and 19. Apparently contractually due, but which RC had never disclosed to anyone before. And they're still, they say, trying to get to the bottom of that. Never disclosed, but there was an interesting detail where within those negotiations, Tuberty agreed to waive a loyalty bonus to the same value of 120k that was due to him at the end of his contract, Mm. which would have led RTE to break even, which is why the article suggested they didn't... um, disclose this um, had happened. But then they got into the arrangement with Renault and the 75k a year and then they became culpable and the, it became an even bigger mess. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, that question of how culpable Tuberty is front page of the Sunday Times, but that survey again, I know only 7% think he is most to blame, but he's still guilty, or not, he's not guilty, but he's, people are perceiving him as involved by association in terms of his likability and his mm. relatability. And that's the problem. Like, even if he has done nothing wrong. I think the 47% who say he should never be back, um, it'll all come out in the wash um, about uh, how involved he was or how people feel he is to blame. But he trades in the most elusive currency that journalists can trade in, which is likability and relatability. Mm. And regardless of his role in this, that fact that his salary is so high has been like driven into people's brains that he's on half a million. Can he really go back on radio and will will ordinary people relate to him in the same way because of that half a million figure that's been bandied it's about? It's probably also the case, would you agree, that because he has been a relatively silent, like he's, he's issued two statements, the first of which was quite small and, and short and that he hasn't been heard from at all in over a week, that people would rightly presume surely you know how much you're earning, so surely you know what your agent is asking for and they find it very difficult to reconcile the country being asked to tighten its belt and RTE's top figures being asked to take 15% pay cuts with the idea that Ryan Tuberty was still trying to squeeze RTE for every last bit undisclosed behind the scenes. Yeah, I just I struggle to see how he will come back from it. And he does come back on the radio. That first, first episode, I'm sure, will be as eagerly anticipated as when Holly Willoughby had mm. to go back on this morning after the first Philip Schofield scandal. Um, how, how can he come back from this? And I, like, I noted that he's he's 50. Like He still has like 20 years of broadcasting career in yeah. him. So my heart goes out to him in that regard. But I just I, it's hard to see a way for him to recover right now. Um, and particularly that issue of relatability. Jordy, Jody Corcoran in the Sunday Independent did a good opinion piece saying... This is less about RTE. This is about public attitudes to inequality in the country. And he said it's about the gulf that exists between what what are called the ordinary people of Ireland and the professional managerial class who assume the top positions in many companies and organisations. Will Tuberty get like bandied into that RTE board um, association? I was looking at the figures on his salary and if you compare him to average earners, um, he's earning not in the top 1% of earnings um, for the average Irish taxpayer. He's earning in the top 0.6%. Um, he's earning twice what the Taoiseach earns, which Brenda Power mm. points out in her column. But also he's earning what the Taoiseach and the President earned combined. Like, wow. It's just so, so hard The top for 0.6%. So he would effectively then, he would be in like, out of every 150 people that you put into a room, he's the richest person by well, average. Yeah, because less than 1% of the population earn over 275k a year and he was on 545 yeah. in 2019. So it is just a it's a it's it's a crazy figure, and the main question that's come out of this is what what do these broadcasters deserve? He's not the only one in that top zero point six percent. I think four other of the top broadcasters are in that category. So how can we justify paying these huge amounts? That's, it's a bigger question about mm. equality. It's about what we value in journalism, and it's about who gets the most money in journalism. I mean, a lot of the top people are you know chat show hosts or Joe Duffy, you know Ray Darcy, and I think she goes particularly hard on Ray Darcy for she. I think she's quite harsh on him saying he. <laughs> 
just <laughs> vacuous daytime chat. But in well, journalism, like... Each of their own. <laughs> but in industry that is like completely falling apart, we're trying to fund investigations, innovations. People are, you know, reporting on crime and putting their lives on the line. Why do we value the likes of Ryan Tuberty and Ray Darcy over mm. other journalists in this industry that it, it feels like it's sinking? Peter, I, I want to say I something. Think, well, I just, I, I, think, um, I think Rachel makes a brilliant point and the data she produces there is really, really interesting. I thought myself, actually, when this story broke, I was surprised, actually, that there wasn't uh, more of a chorus in support of Ryan Tuberty at the time. Normally, when these things happen, you have, obviously, everybody will dump on him, but then there will always be people who will stick up for him and come out and say, you know, I mean, you know, if you if, if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. He's a top broadcaster. He's entitled to it. Look what he's done for the state. And there was very, very little of that. I did hear a little bit of... Joe Duffy, where one or two people made sort of half-hearted comments. So really, yeah. there wasn't very much support for him, which I which I was surprised at. I thought there might be a little bit more because I would have thought he had generated some goodwill amongst the public out there. So it's 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 been quite harsh on him throughout the whole period of time. I think the eye-watering salaries have just driven everybody crazy. Uh, in a previous life, I worked in the RTE newsroom, so I've worked with a lot oh. of the colleagues in there. Yeah, I spent yeah. nine years in the RTE newsroom. So and you know how resourced well, I know how it, actually yeah, of course, and I know that, that you know there is discontent at the fact that certain sections of the organisation seem to get everything. Uh, and there are also there's a disconnect with the programme makers and the journalists and the broadcasters and management within the station. Uh, and that has sort of emerged, I think, after the, the PAC committee. And I see M.O. Kelly has written a very strong piece in the Sunday Independent and has been very strong in her comments. And you saw the protests. The journalists yeah. aren't given to protests. Mm. I mean, it's a long time since there was a strike in RTE. Yeah. Uh, that goes back to the early 90s. And, um, you know, people felt very strongly about it. And it was an opportunity, I think, in this this occasion as a result of what happened in relation to Ryan Tuberty's salary for people to come out and comment. But I think as a result of this, there is going to be a review. There are going to be changes. I mean, whether you can suddenly employ somebody like Ryan Tuberty as a staff member, I don't know. I mean, people go in and out of fashion and maybe he was fashion for a very long time and can consider that he'd be fashion for a very long time and could then get a full-time employment contract with RTE. Yeah, actually, that, but a, a lot of people yeah. are just, you know, there is it, it is ephemeral in one way, a broadcaster's appeal. It can end after a period of time. That, not you, Gavin. It's, no, it's not a very you, good point. You know? Everyone has their, their fleeting so the, moment. If, if, you, if Ryan Tuberty well, was a 10 years member of the, the payroll and then you decide that actually there's no interest in having him on the airwaves anymore, then you have him on the payroll do, doing what exactly? It's, it's a pretty fair point. And, um, and the extra premium reflects the fact that it could be a short-term contract. Yeah. You know? And also that Orty doesn't have to pay his pension by, by paying the, the production company up front for his services for that time. Um, David Davenpower, uh, former Orty political correspondent, um, is with us on the line. Um, David, thanks for, for joining us this morning. Um, I suppose, what are your reflections on the, the reputational damage and the general outlook for Orty on today being, what, day 11 of this controversy? Well, I don't think there's ever been a week like it in the entire history of RTE. I think that people will look at the broadcaster differently uh, from this day on. And obviously, it's a, a very important juncture because um, for the second time, Kevin Backer's coming in, this time as Director General, will have to restore morale across the entire organisation, uh, a task he carried out in the wake of the Father Reynolds court case day back a number of years ago when he was made... Uh, director uh, when he was made director of news and uh, friends of Kevin Backhurst tell me that he's absolutely up for the job uh, that he's raring to go and that he sees it as a you know a, a really a, a, um, the challenge of his his career to date and it certainly will be a major challenge because I think one of the things that will uh, uh, emerge from this is 
that the, the, the uh, OTE will no longer be seen as a commercial semi-state. We see the uh, commercial revenue dwindling so that the lion's share of revenue now comes from the, uh, the um, uh, license fee. So I think you know, the, the, the days of OTE commercial uh, ruling the roost in Montrose are probably gone after, uh, after what has happened. And I think that is probably the most long-lasting uh, 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 legacy of what's happened. And of course, uh, as we see in uh, the Sunday Independent today, uh, senior government sources are openly trailing the prospect of the Controller and Auditor General uh, being asked to audit RTE's accounts, mm. which would be an absolutely seismic change in the organisation. Uh, as you know, Gavin, the uh, CNAG audits uh, non-commercial semi-states, and that would be, I suppose, if he was called in, uh, 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 it, it would put the rubber stamp on the idea of commercial no longer being in the hegemony in RTE. Well, does it suggest that actually there may not be a future for RTE to have any commercial business at all? And knowing Montrose, as you did for, for having been in there for so many years, do you think that RTE could credibly do a lot of what it currently does if it went fully down what we'd think of as the BBC model, where there actually wasn't any commercial revenue or at least meaningful commercial revenue being sought at all? I don't think that RTE could survive on the licence fee alone. That's what you're suggesting. Uh, there would have to be a substantial additional government subvention for RTE to operate in any kind of role that uh, resembles the role that uh, it has now. Now, of course, you could well see a slimmed down RTE. You could see certainly a 2FM being sold off. It is a loss-making radio station. And, uh, you know, uh, there could be uh, other radical changes. But I, I do see some kind of commercial input as being uh, as being essential for the operation of RTE. Uh, and it would be a real game changer if RTE was fully funded by the state. Now, we know that uh, most of the uh, revenue, as things stand, come from the licensee. Mm. But nonetheless, it would, it, it would be a very, very different organisation if, if it was 100% funded by the state in any shape or form. Uh, and is different just a, 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 another way of saying slimmed down? Or would there be some benefits to maybe RTE whittling off some of that commercial stuff and, and focusing on what some might see as its core mission? Well, one of the problems throughout the uh, D Forbes legacy, officials in uh, the Department of Communications will tell you, was that while RTE came in rattling the tin cup uh, looking for extra funds, there were never any concrete plans as to how the organization would be reformed. There were feeble efforts to, uh, to shrink the headcount, uh, which didn't really come to anything. But in terms of radical reform, there were never any proposals coming from RTE uh, I've already mentioned one possible reform, that is the selling off of 2FM. Mm. But, I mean, RTE needs to come up with uh, concrete proposals as to how it sees its own future uh, and not uh, predicate everything uh, on getting an, a, 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 a bigger slice of the licensee or a reformed licensee or a more efficient licensee. And I would imagine that that would be uh, Kevin Backer's priority as he comes in as Director General. Um, in, in fact, in a paradoxical way, um, it's, it's, it's a gift for him because he knows now that the prospect of extra funds for RTE uh, are, are not going to happen. Um, that's, the, that's a given. So uh, if, you, if you will, he knows the hand that he's been dealt. And I would say his, his priority will be to draw up a, uh, 
um, a, a plan for a slimmed down RTE, mm. uh, given that uh, he really doesn't have any alternative. I, I was talking to somebody in, in Montrose a couple of days ago who said that although he now has the mother and father of all jobs awaiting him, that in a way maybe it's never been some ways easier for an incoming DG because a lot of the institutional resistance that might have been there to big changes before is now going to melt away if they see this as being necessary to be able to salvage some sort of reputation again. Yes, it'll be a difficult job, but uh, I mean, the hand that he's been dealt is, it, it, it's, it's not all negative, you will. Uh, as you say, he, he does have a, he, he does have the wind behind him and he certainly will have uh, the, uh, I, I think he will have a fair win from the staff. Uh, he was relatively popular when he was there before. And uh, I, I think that uh, it, the staff are in RT, their morale is really on the floor and they're looking for leadership uh, above everything else. Uh, they feel they haven't got it, uh, certainly from the outgoing director general who's departed under the biggest cloud imaginable. Mm. And they don't feel they're getting it from the board and in particular from the uh, the new chair, who I think was notably weak in her performance uh, in front of the, the two committees this mm. week. Uh, one final question before I let you go, David. What do you think this whole Ferrari will now mean for the 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 pay that's able to be uh, commanded by the contractors, the, the talent as Junior Ali no longer wants them to be referred to? Uh, do you think that the public scrutiny that's been drawn to presenters' wages by all this means that the days of anyone being able to command two or three or four hundred thousand euro a year might now be over? Oh, I think they're definitely over. I think uh, existing uh, presenters now, when their contracts come to an end, they'll be offered uh, radically uh, smaller salaries and fees, and they'll be told, well, if they don't like it, that's just too bad. Uh, and I think that uh, if there is a suggestion from the, uh, the, the the review of RT that's about to be launched, that perhaps the pay of top presenters might be pitched uh, at or below that of, say, the Taoiseach or some prominent government, go- government figure, or even the the, the Secretary General of a department, mm. I think that will find a lot of favour with uh, the government of the day, because, of course, we don't know when the review process will, will conclude. It might be after the next election. Whether that wage finds a lot of favour with those who are currently on the payroll, I don't know. Uh, David Davenpower, former RTE uh, political correspondent and indeed former host of Morning Ireland. Uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, this morning on On The Record. Rachel, um, aside from the, the polling about the future of Ryan Tuberty, and I should say, by the way, uh, Jane Souter of DCU and Neve Smith, the chair of the Oireachtas uh, Media Committee, joining us after 12 o'clock to discuss where things go from here uh, for the Oireachtas and for RTE themselves. Uh, but there's also been quite extensive polling about uh, party support and people standing on a whole range of other issues. That's uh, outlined quite extensively in the Sun Independent. What's your bet for you today? Yeah, it was quite interesting. So Sinn Féin currently at 31%, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael at 19% each. Um, and then this question of the popularity of Varadkar still holding at about 37%. That said, he's still less popular than um, Mary Lou, Michal Martin and Holly Cairns, all of which I think had about 43% popularity. Um, there was an interesting piece by Kevin Cunningham, who is the pollster behind Orla- um, Ireland Thinks. Mm. And he somewhat self-consciously recalls a last minute polling question he introduced to a survey in uh, into a poll in 2016 um, that he later discovered had a big impact and that question was do, I think it was something like do you think Varadkar should take over or who should the next leader be Okay he the, This of course at the time being Enda Kenny as, as Fine yes. leader but no one knew if he would hang in there for the full term Exactly He later admits in this piece that he found out that that actually had an impact that saw Varadkar's take over Now in the poll about who should take over uh Fine Gael or should should um, Fraga remain? He's about fifty percent, but uh, Harris is there as well on twenty eight percent. 
But I'm kind of confused. Where's Coveney in all this? He was the chief contender with Radcliffe back in 2016, and now he's he's not even being <laughs> included in this polling question. Yeah, uh, which actually is quite striking because the same question I think was put in last week's poll by Red Sea for the Business Post that they had asked that, again the same question as who would be your your preferred Fine Gael leader, and again they distinguished between those who are already Fine Gael voters and those who might be elsewhere in the pool. And I seem to recall that the split between Simon Harris and Simon Coveney was almost 50-50 that Simon Harris had a, a bit of a lead, but not by much. And it appears that he, he just has evaporated as a contender in the last seven days. So curious. I mean, um, it's interesting to see a pollster reflect on the impact of their polls. There's a big debate in the um, data world about the value of political polling or, or the effect it has on democracy. Mm, I saw He's, someone last night refer to this as, oh, it's your latest weekly batch of statistical noise. <laughs> it, it, like, is there some truth to that? You know, uh, be, being... A data journalist yourself, like you probably accept that there is a, sometimes you can put an awful lot of editorial weight on something which is quite insignificant. Well, we're constantly polling where the parties are and trying to predict the outcome of a potential general election. But my favourite data journalist, Mona Chalabi, who worked in 538, which was the original like oh, 2016. Nate Silver's thing, yeah. Yeah, she has come out, she works for The Guardian now, and she said political polls are bad for democracy, that we are constantly trying to guess who you should vote for or who you will vote for. And then the more that you say, well, these guys are ahead in the race, the less likely people are to pay attention to the outliers or to the smaller groups and the more you try and predict the more you, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy okay. so we're constantly trying to predict the outcome of parties but should we spend more time discussing policy and discussing the, where, the can, the candidates stand, um, where the candidates stand yeah. and then letting people vote at the time of voting she takes quite a strong stance against political polling and though I do we all love a political poll yeah. and I think Irish media has a good relationship with polling and that we're constantly asking the public what they think, which really enriches polling mm. uh, or coverage for, from my view. But that party question is... Yeah. is, is I, don't, I don't think there's any great surprise in that. I mean, I think people like to jump on a, a popular cause, you know, and if you're continuously seeing, you know, a certain political party is doing well, it, it can have an influence. So I think there is something in that. I mean, obviously, she's basing it on data. I'm just basing it on my own kind of view of, of the way things go. But I mean, it's like it's like an incumbent has always got a better chance in an election because they're there. Better they're, the they're, devil you know. You know better yeah. the devil you know, but also they've, they've established themselves to a certain extent. And that seems to have some value with the public. So if you're getting positive opinion polls rating all the time, it has to be beneficial. And if you see another party in decline, and you can see that certain parties are in huge decline, uh, that reflects very badly on them and kind of turns people away from them, I think, a little bit. So I think they are damaging to democracy. I think that there's probably an argument that they become, or they're, they're perceived as being so self-fulfilling that actually maybe the media doesn't cover a campaign in, in the full holistic way that it's meant to because they sort of go in there with preconceptions as to who's already going to win. I mean, we'd only look at the last general election where, for example, the first TV debate on Virgin Media moderated by Pat Kenny was between Leo Varadkar and Micheál Martin because they were perceived as being the leaders of the only two large parties. They um, Virgin um, came up with a matrix of airtime and Mary Lou MacDonald didn't make the cut. And yes. lo and behold, look how the election turned out. Um, having given the caveat that sometimes we can put too much stock into what might only be statistical anomalies, um, the fact that the Labour Party is down one to two percent in this series of polls, um, Peter, I mean, OK, it's only down one. So that's kind of noise. But there's always a trend to be looked at there. Two percent is the lowest that the Labour Party has ever been in any series of polls under any pollster in the history of opinion polling in Ireland. Yes. And it does make you wonder, really, what are they going to do to be able to arrest what seems like a long-term decline. It's it's very hard to see, uh, you know, what, what what they can do. And I should make a confession here. I have an association with the Labour Party over the years. Um, I mean, the party is still suffering massively from its involvement in government. And it, it has found it very hard to find a new path 
when it emerged from government and when it used to represent, I suppose, the socially underprivileged, that, that, that role has been fulfilled by Sinn Féin and fulfilled in a way that Labour hasn't been able to get in there. So it has become maybe, you know, a party that is trying to be more progressive and trying to raise certain issues and attract attention. I think the choice of Vala Bacic, uh, as leader was very much in that kind of liberal, kind of social progressive approach that they thought might have an attraction. Was, was it and it doesn't seem to be having an attraction, like, unfortunately. Is, is there, if you're trying to be the, the party that represents the the underprivileged or those who may feel like they're they're under the jackpot, um, and I don't mean this as a, as a slur towards her, but a lifelong legislator, a Trinity College professor, uh, someone who's now just completed their doctorate, it, it doesn't fulfil necessarily what people would have in their minds as the champion of the working classes. No, and I think I saw Alan Kelly emerge there last week. I mean, he was on the committee and generally when he makes contributions, I think they are listened to a little bit. And I'm not trying to say anything against Ivana. Ivana had a very successful by-election result in Dublin Bay South and obviously that gave great encouragement to members of the Labour Party because it was a good news story at the time. Mm. But it just doesn't seem to be registering at the moment. Uh, I don't think it's a lack of hard work on her part. I don't think it's a lack of work in terms of the, the parliamentary party membership but it's just not registering with the public. Those that are discontent with the government are looking at Sinn Féin. Um, and if you want to get into niche issues, I mean, somebody like, for example, Holly Kearns has come in with the Social Democrats, and maybe there was a kind of a freshness about that that has been proved attractive to people. Uh, they're polling slightly better. I mean, I think the irony is uh, Eamon Ryan in the Green Party, and the Green Party are seen to be having a hard time. But if you listen to items, for example, on this show, where you're talking about rural parties being formed in order to kind of counteract the Green agenda, the influence they are having in government is is significant, I would have thought. And yet their poll yeah. ratings are going down, down, down. Mm. So um, sometimes, you know, polling is very unfair, but that's politics. There's no point crying about it. You just have to go out and try and, you know, to, to, to convince people that what you stand for is worth voting for. Uh, I want to go back to the front page story in the Business Post about the budget. And Peter, I'm going to pick your thoughts on that in, in just a moment. But before I do, uh, Rachel, just while we're on the topic of, of um, opinion polls and surveys in general, um, isn't there an interesting note that uh, you mentioned the question marks around who would be people's preferred Fine Gael leaders? And what we're including here, where it says Leo Varadkar 50%, Simon Harris 28 that's only among those who say they would vote Fine Gael, which in itself is already a small subset of the overall people that are polled. Of course, yes. And Leo Varadkar is already like, he's much less popular than Holly Garns, Mio Martin and Mary Lou. So I guess it's, it's <laughs> they're trying to pick uh, the best of um, a kind of party that's under challenge itself. And also not to do down Ireland Thinks, I think it's a great organisation. But I agree with your point that this polling is partnered to policy issues um, when we cover it, rather than the be all and end all of our political coverage. Mm. Uh, more thoughts on political polls and all. Uh, if you've got any, uh, 87 106 is the number to send them in. Uh, I mentioned the budget and that piece on the front page of the Business Post, uh, Peter, and um, it, it's a, it remarkable really in a way that we've, we've spent so much of the last couple of months talking about how the government is going to put its 10 billion surplus to good use. And now finally we have some intel that the summer economic statement has crept up on us yes. uh, under such a cover of darkness because of all eyes being on Montrose <laughs> that only well, finally fair, now fair. are they beginning to put some shape on where the money is going to go. Fair play to the Business Post for acknowledging that there are other things happening in the country at the moment. And obviously this is a huge uh, item. This is, yeah, the summer economic statement which is due out on Tuesday, I think, Gavin. Well, um, if, and if, if they're ready to sign off on it, because as the piece suggests that there might not actually be unanimity within government around the shape of what's going on. So well, We know there was a little bit of hijinks at one stage. Fine Gael were looking for tax cuts and then Fianna Fáil came out and said, well, hold on a minute, you didn't discuss that properly with us beforehand. So there's a little bit of posturing from the two main uh, parties. They all want to be slapped on the back for, for doing what they believe is, in, is going to be popular with the public. Uh, it looks as if they have a budget of in and around 5 billion to spend additionally this year. 
um, from this ginormous surplus of 65 billion that seems to be, you know, on its way up till 2026 with all the foreign direct investment cash and tax receipts, etc. that's coming in. So 5 billion that they're going to be able to put into the public purse. Uh, A billion of that is going to go in tax cuts. So that'll be popular with, I suppose, the two establishment parties. Um, And then 4 billion in terms of investment in public services and that sort of stuff. So that 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 is the bounty that has been given to the public. Is, but in terms of lo- is sorry. Incre- sorry to interrupt you. Is, is increasing core spending by four billion? In in other words, building that into the that's the new normal that they would spend four billion this year and then they'd commit to renewing that every year. Does that sort of go against the argument that so much of the surplus this year is windfall and that actually really we should be acting quite cautiously for fear that the windfall suddenly dries up, that corporates move their intellectual property offshore and then suddenly we're just not getting the money anymore. Well, as the man says, we've been there before, haven't we? I mean, when sort of in the good days we spent and spent and then suddenly it all went west Mm. uh, and then we couldn't honour our commitments in that regard. So, yeah, I mean, the Financial Advisory Council, who are the kind of supervisory body or the body that comes in and comments on these things and is supposed to be a watchdog, I suppose, that the government doesn't lose the run of itself, I think they're acknowledging maybe that spending can increase to that level. But there's always the fear that more money into the economy economy will result in increased inflation and that's a problem. However, in terms of the long-term money, and there are going to be additional receipts, so that money has to be spent and used wisely. Uh, I think the, what these, the Business Post is saying is that 12 billion of that is going to be put into the National Reserves, put it away for the rainy day. Mm. Uh, you know, the, that pension crisis we're going to have down the line where young oh, Ireland yes. becomes yeah. old Ireland. Uh, and also that, that there's going to be money put into a land bank and a land development agency. And this is to try and deal with the housing crisis. Yeah. So uh, seven billion for that. That's what they're saying. That's yeah. Uh, one interesting note before I go to an ad break, because there's a few other pieces that I do want to get to. Um, so people may remember that in the budget in 2011, so this, or 2021, so that's the budget that was announced two years ago, the government introduced something called uh, the spending rule, where the state would uh, only increase core day-to-day spending by 5%. Uh, over the previous year. It was abandoned last year because of the pressures of inflation and now there's a risk that because of the resulting pressures of inflation that they might have to abandon it again this year. So one might question the value of a rule introduced two years ago if they weren't prepared to honour it in either of the subsequent budgets. Uh, Michael McGrath tells the Business Post today that the decision around growth and core expenditure is a key one which will be formalised next week. We have to strike the right balance between ensuring that we have enough resources to provide to support our economy needs while at the same time not adding to the inflation pressures that are already there. So it's a balancing act, uh, one which the government may have concluded uh, by Tuesday. We will wait and see. Uh, Plenty more to come as we continue our look through the papers with Rachel and Peter when we're back after this. Peter, there's a piece which is a story which is kind of bubbling along. We've we've mentioned it from time to time on this programme and we had uh, the Justice Minister Helen McEntee on recently to talk about exactly how all of this might play out. Um, Two interesting pieces on page 15 of the Business Post about the government's intentions to legislate on hate speech. And uh, Jim O'Callaghan is one interesting contributor on this front. Fianna Fáil's just a spokesman, obviously not a minister. Um, but he's having, the, with this this bill having already gone through the dole, he is now raising some concerns around how deeply problematic he believes it might be. Tell us more. Yes, yes. As you say, two pieces in the Business Post and obviously an excellent piece by Catherine Sands uh, where she talks about this, the bill is. So it's the Criminal Justice Incitement to Violence or Hatred and Hate Offences Bill 2022. And this is currently going through the Doyle. And this will replace 
the, the, if, it, if it is passed, the, prohibi- the Prohibition on Incitement to Hatred Act 1989. So we already have legislation on the books, you know, against the incitement to hatred. But this is kind of more focused. And obviously, in their wisdom, the government feel that it is important at the moment. Now, it's been supported by various different groups that support mo- minorities, etc. And they believe that this is very important. Uh, and under the bill, it will create, you know, somebody could be jailed for up to five years for hate crimes, such as calling for violence against a particular group of people because of their race, their gender, Mm. uh, religion, sexual orientation, any of that sort of stuff. Um, But it will also create, and this is the crucial bit, and this is what Jim O'Callaghan comes in on, is uh, an aggravated form of certain existing criminal offences. So, for example, if somebody assaults somebody, we know that that's a criminal offence. But if you assault somebody on the basis of hate, that will now be an aggravated offence and they should get a greater sentence if convicted of that, if they go to court. Now, Jim is raising concerns and and he is looking for an amendment to this bill and in his opinion piece, he's basically saying that it's not clear that the motivating factor for the assault or the attack is hatred under the bill. What he's saying is that if somebody assaults somebody and then says an abusive term afterwards, which can happen in the course of Mm. a heated engagement, that that will be deemed uh, a hate crime, if you know what I mean. And basically saying that instead what should happen is that the actual crime should be motivated by hate. So it's a, it's a distinction. It's a fine distinction, but I do understand the point he's so, making. So just uh, then, just refine that a little bit because the, this just might be a bit uh, cerebral for people to get their heads around. So okay. if you call somebody a name before you were to physically assault them, in that instance, you would imagine it's pretty clearly motivated by hate towards that person or the the the, the demographic that they're from. Is that right? Well, well, but if you were to say the comment afterwards, then the motive for your assault is ambiguous? Well, it's n- not necessarily. I mean, it, that that's the point that he is trying to make. I suppose what you're saying is that in terms of any criminal offence, you have to, you know, what is the intention behind, behind the criminal offence? Mm. So let's say if you gather a group of people and you say we're going to go down and attack some minority group, for example, and we said we want to get them out and we're going to use violence to try and get them out of society, that's clearly motivated by hate, okay? Mm. But if you have a situation where, let's say, there's an interaction between two people and an assault has occurred... And in the course of that, some abusive language is used, which is discriminatory language, which is unacceptable language. But it might necessarily mean that the person was motivated by hate. Do you understand the point? And therefore, he's saying that that distinction must be recognised within the legislation. It's a very, very fine point. But I do understand what he's getting at. Um, You know, I mean, we have situations where... For example, people are drug addicts or whatever, and they can mm. be abusive and stuff like that, and they can say stuff. But do they really hate the individual? Do they hate the individual because that person is a member of a minority? You know, so I, maybe it, that's is, not is the, the language, case. Uh, like a, a, an incidental byproduct well, of that the could assault, be, that or could is be it actually in a core part of the whole thing. This is the point. I mean, again, at the end of the day, I mean, these matters go to court and you'll have legal teams on both sides who'll argue the toss in relation to that. But I think he's trying to get in before that and he's making that fine distinction. And it's a kind of a civil liberties distinction and civil rights distinction. I think it's I think it's an important one. I I do get his point. So uh, before I ask Rachel to come in on a few other bits. So just to again, I'm sorry to to basically solicit you for, for legal advice, but you're a barrister and you're here and you're available. Is it ever really possible to prosecute based on what's in someone's head or to fully establish what is in somebody's head. Because if, if this is going to get into the those kind of grey areas of trying to establish was an act motivated by hatred or was something you said just kind of an incidental by the by, it, it requires you to be able to fully know 
what a person was thinking at the time they did it. And that, that doesn't strike me as something you can very easily do. Well, it might be something that you can very easily do, but that is what the criminal law is based on. It is based on intention. So, for example, when something happens, you understand the distinction between murder, for example, and manslaughter. It's all about intention. You know, what did the person intend to do? Did they intend to kill somebody? Did they intend to seriously injure somebody? Mm. Or was it a byproduct of a moment of anger, for example? So it's all about intention. Um, which is uh, fascinating. Rachel, you've got another, is a piece open with some, some highlighting in front of you or do you want to talk about something else entirely? So, so you've, you've got the highlighter out and you've highlighted something. So have at it. We've got about four minutes left anyway. So if you've got something you want to get off your chest about what's in the papers, go for it. No, I was just also looking at Catherine Sands' piece on, on the hate crime legislation. I think um, just purely layman's terms, I always struggle with the definition of hate um, and trying to understand what exactly it is defined as. Is it discrimination? Um how, how it is applies, particularly in law. And in general, it can be bandied around in public debate a lot in a very vague way. Mm. So I find it hard to pin down um, what it means, just purely from a layman's perspective. I will defer to you, Peter, on, on the legal definition. But I do read that the coalition sought definitions for words such as hatred or incitement um, and that issue of the provision that... Um, would make it an offence to simply possess material that is likely to incite violence or hatred. So I think a lot of people are concerned that the vagueness of this law, on one hand, will make it um, open to abuse or open to kind of like broad interpretations that could be damaging to freedom of speech. Mm. On the other hand, it sounds almost so vague that it couldn't be enacted because... I don't know. I, I don't know. I can't. Uh, Peter, you'll have a smart well, and the, more intelligent well, the, opinion. The advice that Helen McEntee says she has from the Attorney General is that she reckons most people understand what it is to hate and that if you define what that is then in the act you end up excluding some things that people might understand as being hatred anyway. Do, do you think that's a, a, a fair proposition? Not that I'm asking you to openly dissent yeah. from the Attorney General. Um, but. No, well, I'm, <laughs> I probably won't do that. But um, no, I think I think it's, it's, it's couched, it's not just hate as such. I agree with you. I mean, how do you define hate? Um, it is more kind of an incitement to hatred. It is an incitement to action. It, it has to lead to action. And I mean, one of the concerns, one of the huge civil liberty concerns about this is that the guard they now can prosecute on the basis of somebody, somebody having something within their possession that is deemed to concern hate. So, for example, if somebody writes a, a letter to themselves or has some material on their person that they don't want to use and don't want to kind of put into the public foray yeah. or whatever, um, that that potentially is an offence under this. So that that really hits that kind of freedom of expression in terms of that. But I think the legislation as or the bill as drafted is about, you know, basically where hate comes into, you know, is, is given a form and becomes an action of some sort. Uh, if you can understand that, then uh, by all means pursue uh, Peter Leonard's uh, barristerial <laughs> services. Uh, he is available. Well. Uh, we've got about 75 seconds left. So in the time that I've got left, I wanted to very quickly ask uh, Rachel Lavin, given that you're, you're home uh, for a brief period, family occasion next week, I hope it all goes well. Uh, are you terribly surprised to learn on page 14 of the Mail on Sunday uh, that a three or four star family weekend break in one of Ireland's staycation towns would cost you about a grand and that uh, therefore a lot of people are now deciding to go abroad and go glamping instead? Glamping abroad. Um, yeah, I don't know. First of all, shout out to Emma and Lavin. Emma Lavin, my sister, and Gavin Fleming getting married next weekend. That's why I'm delighted the to be home. The best of the But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Ireland is really expensive and the Sunday Times has done good reporting in the past about how a lot of hotel spaces are being taken up by our need for direct provision mm. and asylum seekers. So therefore, hotel prices are through the roof because you know, we're putting a lot of our homeless people into hotels. And so people are using Airbnbs and taking up homes for tourism purposes. Mm. Like, obviously, yeah, the market is 
overwhelmed. I mean, I still love Ireland for a staycation, but most part, it's at home in Roscommon on the farm. <laughs> as, as long as the, the, the as long as the house in Roscommon is always there, uh, then it's always pursue that one. Uh, Rachel Lavin, uh, best of luck with the wedding, and to Evan and and her beloved uh, Emma. Best, Emma, excuse me, <laughs> Emma and her beloved. Best of luck next weekend. Rachel Lavin is a data journalist with the Times and Sunday Times, based in London. Uh, welcome home. And Peter Leonard, uh, barrister and presenter of the Business Post Law on Trial podcast. Thank you both very much for joining us. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.